0: Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Danny. This is the Ice Planet Podcast. This is the seventh time I have tried recording this. So that's the mood I'm in. That's the shape I'm in this evening. Uh, This is the Ice Planet Podcast, where we read every book in Ruby Dixon's Ice Planet Barbarian series, and I discuss it with a different host each week. Things are tense this week. Not tense. I'm just a little high strung. Um, Things have been a little crazy at work. Things have been a little crazy at home. We're going to get through it. I had this long thing written out about like comforting you all and comforting myself. And then I realized, who am I? I'm not a public health official. I don't really. I wanted to stay in my lane. Basically, that's what it is. Um, I will say this. I hope that everyone who is listening to this and everyone impacted by the virus, by whether it's self-quarantine, um, you know, someone who had tested positive, whatever it is, the stress, the anxiety, whatever it is, I hope you are safe and healthy and can do whatever you need to do to remain safe and healthy, whether that's stay home from work, social distancing, self-quarantine, whatever. I hope you're able to do that and be supported. Again, I'm gonna stay in my lane because one, I'm kind of falling apart myself, and I'm not even a public health official. So should you be listening to me? I don't know. Wash your hands, cover your mouth. That's the extent that's the extent of my knowledge. Um uh, I don't even know what to go do next. Um I would like to thank all of you, actually, for this weekend, because I had a very bad Friday. So I went on our Ice Planet podcast Twitter, which you can find at Ice Planet Pod, and I asked all of you to tell me your favorite barbarian. And you all answered, and it was a really fun, it was just really fun seeing everyone's, you know, personal faves. There were some popular choices, surprisingly, surprising to me, Warwick was one of them, Liana and Bloom said, I really like work. He's sweet and shy and totally down with helping Summer save the day. And when the rest of the tribe is annoyed with her incessant talking, he thinks her clever and charming, perhaps boring to some, but an A plus beta hero to me. Contra Perry Chat, ooh, I hope I pronounced that right, also said, Work, he's mellow and a good listener. So he's a popular one. Another popular one was actually Asha at Jess Reads Too Much says, I know she doesn't totally count. BT-dub, she totally counts. But her story resonated with me the most. Out of all the heroines, she's the most like me. I love her and also hate all the bad parts of her. I have far too much to say about that book. At Tall and Diabolical said she loved Ashan and Himalo. I cry every time. My heart, heart emoji, heart emoji, heart emoji. And it is, it's a pretty, it's a pretty intense read. Um, another popular choice was Saluk. At Jack on Skate says of him, he is confident, patient, and considerate. Gyllenhaal of fifteen says that he has good taste and he was so kind and loving to Tiffany, which is exactly what she needed, and he respected her boundaries. A blue king. I love it. I've thought about it. If I had to rank my favorite, I have two, Rook, mainly because he just does not give a fuck about this whole tribe, and, it, and I can respect that on some level. Like, the man was doing his own thing for at least a good 20, 30 years. He was out there chillin' surviving. And now he's part of this really weird Pollyanna tribe. I I get it. I respect it. I'd be a little, I'd be an, I'd be a little on my own too. Uh, My other favorite is a Hakko because he just knows how to have a good time, right? Like any man who carves a dildo out of bone, an atomically correct life size dildo out of bone knows how to have a good time. So, you know, those are my faves. And now I feel kind of bad for calling them a weird Pollyanna tribe. I'm just in that mood. I have been on edge all week. I am trying to keep it restrained, but woo, we'll be fine. I'm not in that bad mood. I'm just a little on edge. I need to go lie down and maybe just sit in child's pose for a bit. But let's get into the episode, because you didn't hear me, you didn't come here to hear me just be nervous for <laughs> 20 minutes. So before we get started, one final thing, a content warning. Barbarians hope the book, which is the book we read and discuss in this episode, deals with the loss of a child, an infant specifically. Um, the book touches on it. My co-host, Andrea from the Shelf Love Podcast, and I talk about it, it comes up. If that is something you are sensitive to or you are just not comfortable listening to, I totally understand. That's why I'm saying this now. I want I want everyone to be aware and know what's happening. We don't get into too much detail, but it is a very big theme And it's what breaks up our couple initially in this story. So I just wanted to put that up front. It'll be in the show notes as well. It'll be in the tweet. I just want to make sure no one's in a situation where that's not good for them. So let's get to it. This is Barbarian's Hope. I am joined by Andrea Martucci from the Shelf Love podcast. We have a great discussion about forgiveness, grief, all of that. So I'm really excited for you all to listen in. As always, um, stick around at the end, and I will tell you what's coming up next week. Enjoy. (laughs) Have you heard of the series before I, like, out of the blue, just tweeted you. I was like, hey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I had been following along with your Twitter account, I think. Like, I, either I already followed you or enough other people were retweeting you that I felt like I was following <laughs> you already. And um, and so I hadn't read the book before, any of the books in the series before. But I feel like I had an awareness of it and um, had listened to a couple episodes That's awesome. It's really, I feel like,
0: in the past year, sort of blown up. I feel like it was around for a bit. A few people were like, hey, have you read this? And then it just sort of has blown up recently. And I hear
1: a lot more people talking about it. When did the series start getting published? I think it was,
0: I want to say, 2016. you know what? This is something you would think I would know like off the top of my head. I don't. I think I could actually just look it up right now. I splat it. But.
1: I love the internet. It's great. I mean, it, like these books are not super long. So it's not too surprising that, um, you know, she's been so prolific uh, mm-hmm. in such a short period of time. But yeah, they're, they are wild. Although I get the sense from not having read them, but from listening to the episodes about the earlier books, <laughs> that it that the world building itself is pretty wild, but I feel like this book was not that wild. This was
0: one of the tame, I say tame, this was one of the more tame ones because I think it dealt with so much emotional stuff. Yeah, the first book was published in April 2015. Oh,
1: okay. So it's actually been, oh my God, like five, five years. years.
0: Yeah, it was a slow burn and then it really picked up. Whew. So before we get into it, I realized I never introduced you. Hello, everyone. <laughs> this is Andrea. I, did I pronounce that? It's Andrea.
1: Andrea. I say, I say Andrea, but I'll answer to anything. Andrea Martucci from the Shelf Love Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Um, before we get going, would you like to just share with everyone what the Shelf Love Podcast is about and what you do there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Shelf Love is a podcast and on every episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss a new romance novel worth reading. So we use the text as a jumping off point to have a critical discussion about identity, relationships, and romance novels as a genre. Um, So, you know, I have a lot of romance novelists on as guests, some reviewers. I had a friend on who is not a romance reader, but I, I think it's, you know, we don't do book recaps so much as we really like dig in to like this book talks about this and we're going to we're going to kind of quote things and we're going to talk about it. But it's kind of it, it's more an excuse to talk about the bigger things. And um, and I like to um, like I have a fairly academic perspective on stuff because I enjoy that Uh, I'm not an academic, (laughs) but, um, but I love to talk to academics, but I also like to play around with the format. So another thing that, you know, so like right now I'm in quarantine. Are you in quarantine right now?
0: No, I'm in St. Louis. They have a few reported cases. They are saying like chill with the big events, which are like fine, but they haven't, they haven't locked, they haven't said stay in your homes.
1: Okay. So I'm, I guess I would say I'm in social distancing mode where- my company and my husband's company are are work from home and we're not sending our daughter to daycare. And we're just kind of like staying in. And I know a lot of other people for the benefit of people with, you know, either you have a compromised immune system or you're doing this for the greater good, Mm -hmm. kind of staying in and and distancing. So a lot of people are kind of like at home. And um, unfortunately, you know, that leads to a lot of social isolation. And so one of the things I'm doing now is I'm starting a, a de Cameron quarantine romance book club. Oh, where... that's really cool. <laughs> so we're gonna, I'm gonna have a bunch of guests on, and sort of in a group of people, we're gonna talk. We're gonna have like casual conversations about romance novels because I think it's really important in sort of stressful times, especially when we're not gathering in large groups of people, to have that sense of community and share the joy of romance and and share those stories. I love that. Yeah, I am
0: still expected to show up at work on Monday unless they send a, unless they send something out over the weekend. They were like, see you at a.m. I was like, okay. That's another discussion. So, <laughs> But yes, yeah, so we read Barbarian's Hope, and as you sort of hinted at, not as wacky as some of the earlier ones, like some of the other ones, yeah. as you may have gathered, you know, bone dildos and kidnapping, but this, <laughs> this one is more emotional. I think I was reading it, and I was like, this is... Ruby Dixon's take on a second chance romance on this ice planet.
1: Yeah. And I I have to imagine that I mean again, like the world itself is pretty fantastical and interesting and kind of lends itself to these wild situations. Um and I th- I get the feeling that in these later books, she's she's starting to branch out into exploring more nuanced topics. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, one of the questions you had in here is why do I like the series? And, um, and so this is, you know, to be clear, my first and only interaction with the actual text of the series. However, again, I've listened to episodes. I really like that this whole series is just unabashedly fantasy. Yes. Like, hmm, what would it be like if you could take women from our world that readers can identify with and drop them in a world where there's a whole bunch of giant strapping dudes who love <laughs> giving oral sex, don't have all the ingrained toxic masculinity and misogynistic socialization for our world, plus have genitalia that resemble a clit-stimulating vibrator. Like... And, 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 and like I, own it. Go all in. Yeah, right. And I think the other thing, like with the cooey, is... What would it be like to not have to wonder if you're meant to be with someone because there's this little alien parasite that's going to make it abundantly clear that this person is your fated mate?
0: Yes. like, mm-hmm. And she plays with that a lot. And I've probably repeated myself because I've said this, but it's one of the things I like most about it is because the worm will become a plot device at different points of the conflict of the relationship. Sometimes they'll get together first and then they worry what if the queen, like matches me up with someone else? Other times it'll match them up immediately. They don't like each other, but this queen has said they are destined to be together and they've got to figure it out. So I think she's really good with that, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it, and it is really interesting because like, I think part of the fantasy is that these men on this planet respect and cherish every woman and prioritize female pleasure. And so we don't have to worry that these women will be paired with like an abusive man And forced to stay with them because of the cooey, because in this world, all of the men are just like relentlessly supportive and protective.
0: You do sort of touch on like a little there is this one's weird because there's like this whole separate side story with Claire and Beck that sort of gets touched on that sort of deals with that, which is, I think, as close as this book ever gets to a quote unquote abusive relationship.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I did. I did get shades of that. Like, that was not a great relationship. But also, that was not a Cooey-sanctioned relationship.
0: mm -mm. No. Oh, very. See, there you go. You are bringing so much insight. I love it when people who have not read a lot of books in the series come on because they bring such a unique perspective. Like, I'm kind of deep in it. Like, I probably lost you can't. (laughs) You're like, you can't see the forest through the trees anymore because you're like like licking the bark. (laughs) Exactly. You cannot retrieve me. So it's nice when someone from the outside is like, isn't that kind of wacky? I'm like, I've grown used to it. Yes. So I want to make sure before we get in too deep. So as you touched on, this was your first foray into it. Was there anything you had questions about? I think, because I jumped in mid-series too. My first book Mm -hmm. was book six. But I was really surprised at how well I was able for the most part to get a get a hold on how things worked. Was that the same for you? Or do you feel like, was there anything you had questions
1: about? I don't, again, I mean, I listened to episodes where the, where you've already kind of like covered a lot of the world building. Uh Um, So I think I had less questions and, you know, some of the um, literary devices that are used to kind of uh, show the otherness of the Sakui Mm-hmm. Like, like the way. So, in this book, both characters are Sakui. So, Sakui. Mm-hmm. So, Sik- am I saying it right? D- I, Does it's it doesn't matter. Okay. I,
0: I've mispronounced <laughs> it so many times. I believe it's Sakui at this point. I, that's what I've sweat settled on.
1: Okay, the Sakui. You know, like they spell house like h o w s e or something like that. And, um, you know, the spelling of some of the names of the Earth people, like Stacy. She, in her head, Asha calls her like S-T-A-Y dash S-E-E or something like that. Mm -hmm. So things like that, I feel like I was prepared for like, oh, I get it. You know, they're kind of this is kind of their interpretation of like Earth language words for things. You know, like the whole the whole village structure and their social structure kind of being influenced by the Earth people and them thinking it's all a little weird, but going along (laughs) with it. I don't know. I feel like it's, it's, at, it's really inventive and interesting, but also in other ways, kind of straightforward. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's not, nothing too out of this, oh, I almost said out of this world. Out of this world. <laughs> 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 nothing too off the wall that I don't think you can, like, and that's what I really liked about it. Like you can, cause I don't think the first book is a good one to jump in on. <laughs> to, mm-hmm. And I've said that before. Um, but I think it's, so I think I love that you can kind of like just jump in and not feel too lost. Yeah. So let's get into the book discussion and what it dealt because it dealt with some heavy things, and I would love to hear your thoughts about them. Let's start out with like our couple. We have, this is Asha's book. Asha, for the longest time, was the tribe's only single lady. And so she was very popular. She was a little. I wanted to say spoiled by the attention. That sounds a little judgy, but I don't mean it that way. Like she had her pick of the men. She could go jump from fur to fur. She lived was living the life. And then she resonated to Himalo. And we get, I think, the impression that she wasn't the impression. Well, I mean, I think she said it straight out, so it's not even an impression. He wouldn't have been her first <laughs> choice. Um, he, yeah. he is the tribe tanner. He's a little bit more quieter. He's like the artsy barbarian which i kind of love <laughs> he's-
1: yeah he's he's like the crafter yeah
0: <laughs> he's got a gentler soul he's not a hunter he's not um you know he doesn't run around with this spear or whatever so and so they resonated and they resonated they had a baby and we should say it straight up and i'll definitely say it in the intro um this book sort of deals with the loss of a child they lose their baby shortly after she's born
1: yeah, it sounded like the baby or the kit was born prematurely. Like, um, it sounds like they gestate for a really long time. So multiple seasons too early.
0: Yes. And so the baby was too small. It couldn't take a quee. And as we know, all living things on the planet need the quee to survive. So they lost the baby. And as a result, they sort of split apart. In earlier books, the other tribe members say their resonance is broken, which sounds really bad. And, you know, it's really surreal because we've been told in this book, you know, resonance is forever. You get one residence mate, yada, yada, yada. So yada, yada, yada. How dismissive of I me. Mean. So on and so
1: forth. <laughs> yada, yada, yada is my favorite, like, and so on, so forth
0: <laughs> phrase. Yes. And so that's where we sort of pick up. We see in earlier books, and I don't know if you've got, I don't know how many episodes before this one you listened to. In earlier books, we are given the impression that Asha is dealing She's basically depressed. She has depression. Yeah. When she shows up in earlier books, she's usually always in her bed. She's sleeping. She's, you know, she's surly to the other women, which isn't necessarily a symptom of depression. But I think just the taking to her bed, the social isolation, I I believe that would be considered.
1: Yeah, I thought that the portrayal of her depression uh, even, even before in this book, really fully understanding why it was really clear that she was depressed and didn't quite understand it. Like she says, I'm not, she's basically retreating to her bed. And she said, I'm not truly sleepy, but my furs are a refuge from the world. And right now I just want to crawl into them and forget for a few hours again. And I think like, I personally had a, a period in my life actually while I was pregnant where I had, kind of had some things fall apart in my professional life and I was home a lot and was just like sleeping in really late and like not showering. And,
0: mm-hmm. and, and
1: at the time I didn't realize I was depressed, but looking back on it, I'm like, oh, I was just so clearly depressed. And, yeah, but when you're in it, it's just like, oh, I'm just so tired. I just like, you know, you don't want to see people. You don't want to go out. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to talk to anybody. Everything is exhausting. And so I I felt like that portrayal in this book was really, um, it resonated with me personally. Yeah, and it showed
0: clearly how it was, how it went beyond grief because she did go through this experience where you could understand if she took to the bed for like a few weeks, honestly, that would be understandable. But it does sort of show how this is more severe than just grief. She hasn't talked to people, I feel like, in seasons she just feels really drained she can't emotionally get past this loss she's had and you see like this is bigger than just her grief it's she's dealing with something a lot heavier
1: well it's it's grief not only of her uh the loss of her child but also the way she has dealt with her grief and the way her partner himalo has dealt with his grief they they're not they didn't communicate and and, you know, the way both of them are dealing with it, it's not lending itself to them communicating, but then she, on top of losing her child, she feels like she has been abandoned by Himalo, and from, you know, we we get his perspective, and he thinks he's just giving her space and letting her grieve, and he thinks that his presence is causing her more pain, but it is just contributing to her sense that she can't do the one thing that she wants more than anything and you know Hemlo doesn't want her anymore because maybe she can't have healthy kits. and it's it's just like a a spiral and unfortunately on this planet on the ice planet there doesn't seem to be a good mental health care no um, there's no therapists No. there's no it, you know prior to the earth women coming uh there it was it was mostly men and they they didn't I'm not saying men can't you know be empathetic and mm-hmm. deal with this but i think the earth women have a little bit better understanding of mental health and yes. um are maybe a little bit better able to help her with that and um understand how to help her in that but but I, I think i understand i mean it's how she needs help she needs help getting kind of pulled out of the situation she's in she can't like will herself to not grieve
0: And that's probably why Claire, because I was, my initial reading, I was always kind of irked that she's, Ruby Dixon has very rarely done three POVs in one book. Usually Mm -hmm. it's just two. It's the woman and the man. And in this one, we get three. We get Asha, Himalo, and Claire, who is sort of, I would say, the catalyst that sort of helps pull Asha back into the tribe. Kind of, I wanted to go back to something else you said about, just really clearly differentiating their methods, how they both grieved differently. Asha was mm-hmm. a bit more, um, oh, words are escaping me this morning. I don't want to say confrontational because that also sounds judgy, but she pushed Humano yeah. away. She was a bit, um, she, was, she sniped, she said mean things that she said she admits to herself she did not mean, but she wanted to push him away. And then when he does finally leave, she first is mad at (laughs) herself for doing that and also mad at him for abandoning her. And he was a bit quieter in his grief. He just sort of, he didn't talk about it. He left. He didn't tell her why he was leaving. He left because, you know, I'm causing you pain, so I'm going to leave. And they never at any point had any discussion about any of this.
1: Right. I think they're both very defensive. Like, she feels like of course he doesn't want me anymore and I don't want to talk to anybody right now so I'll push you away. If he goes away because she pushes him away, then it both confirms it confirms her sense that he doesn't want her and that she's a failure and that she's no good for anything anyways. And also though if she has pushed him away, there's a little bit of like a but also I pushed him away. Um and I I think On his side, you know, he feels like she never wanted to be mated to me anyways. Like, Mm -hmm. I was a surprise. And I mean, I think through the course of this book, you see that they are a they are actually a really good pairing because Asha is like a little bit more like fiery and Mm -hmm. (laughs) argumentative and whatever. She needs a partner to balance that out and kind of be the one to like rein her in. I, I, I don't mean that, like, in, like, a gendered way. Just, right. like, you know, some, sometimes, like, partners are just... They just kind of need to balance each other out in that yeah. way. And and kind of be, like, like all right. Like, be a calming presence for yes. her. And they are a really good pair. But I think Himalow has that insecurity as well. Like, she never wanted me anyways. And the best thing I can do is leave her alone. Like, that's actually the best thing for her. But it's not true, obviously.
0: Right. We do, like, in his... So after we meet with Asha and she, we learn about the holiday, we do switch to Himalo. And we do see that he has been trying to care for her in his own sort of like hands-off way. So mm-hmm. I believe it's, is it Kesha? One of the men come up to him and he wants to pay him with like some meat he's hunted. And he's like, no, give it to Asha to make sure she's eating well. Um, mm-hmm. She looks, she thinks to himself, she's looking too thin. She's looking too gaunt. So he is still in his own way trying to care for his mate, even though they are they've split apart.
1: Yeah. I mean, like give her some of that delicious raw meat.
0: <laughs> Frozen mm. meat. They love raw meat on the ice planet. Even some of the women.
1: <laughs> I love, I love it. <laughs> They're like carnivores. I love it. It's, I
0: always just wonder like it, I guess, cause that quee affects your
1: sense of smell and your
0: sense of taste, but to, oh. yes. So like it blunts every, it blunts all of that, all of their sensations, limits all of that. And yeah, they just really love meat.
1: I love I love the disdain for eggs. Like, oh those humans, they love their goddamn eggs. And and they're all like choking them down. They're like, okay, all right, there's not a lot of food around. I guess I will eat these disgusting <laughs> eggs and charred meat. They're disgusted by the concept because they're like, they're young. They're they're
0: young dirt beaks. They're babies. But like they- I know. Oh, anyway. Which is that's some kind of hospitality. Don't never say that the barbarians are not good hosts.
1: Oh yeah, they're they are willing to choke down food that they find repulsive. To be polite. So, and we hinted on this earlier,
0: but this is a big thing in the book that sort of ties some of the other things together. While Asha and Himalo are dealing with their whole thing, Claire decides, or the women decide, we're gonna have a secret Santa. <laughs>
1: they, he, I love, I love. They're basically like, let's put together every holiday tradition we can. It's this is basically the Christmas spectacular of the uh-huh. ice planet. Barbarians series. Yes. Where, <laughs> and, um, and they try to make it like multicultural because uh, I believe one of the human women was, is Jewish. Mm-hmm. Claire compares it to Kwanzaa at one point. She's like, I guess it's technically
0: Kwanzaa. <laughs> yeah. Celebrating harvest.
1: But I do like that they, I mean, it's not religious celebration. It's, mm-hmm it's more just like cultural traditions, like, how can we take these cultural traditions and make them fun and, and simplify them with, you you know, like, what do we have available to us? And what's going to make sense to these people who do not understand? Like, there's, there's some funny bits with like, wait, and then this guy comes down a chimney, like, don't the presents get burnt? And (laughs) there's, and it's, it's, it's funny, because, Truly, a lot of these things are like, yeah, that's messed up.
0: Yeah, there are very like valid that? criticisms about, or observations, not criticisms, about what we do every year around Christmas. There's one episode where they try to talk about mistletoe and the men are, th- episode, excuse me, there's one novella where she tries to introduce the concept of mistletoe and the men are thoroughly confused. And soon yeah. they're just holding random plants over their heads because they just want to get kissed. Just-
1: what it there's a whole thing with um no poison or yes. uh mm-hmm. right because is holly is there holly on this planet and it's obviously holly is poisonous i is think that-, that
0: goes i think that goes back to the mistletoe so the way the men see it the way i think it has so this is in one of the novellas, and i'm and i don't read a lot of the novelas but i think from what i can recall mistletoe is poisonous right yeah, the way the Yeah, sorry, not
1: Holly. Yeah,
0: so the way the it, like, oh, are you kissing them so they don't poison you? And the women are like, no, no, no. <laughs> but that's the version the men go with. They're like, oh, I won't poison you or kiss me, or but like jokingly, like, oh, kiss me so I don't poison you with this plant. And so it sort of takes on this like, oh, it's no poison day. So that's how that came about. Right,
1: right. That's like all their holidays are no poison days. And it's <laughs> it's hilarious. I mean, I think that that's where. What Ruby Dixon is doing is really interesting. Like, she never forgets that these people are – they have never been exposed to human culture before this point. So so taking that sort of outsider view of everything these people are talking about and just treating, like, completely normal. Like, yeah, sure, sure. And then we put some mistletoe up, and then we kiss under it. And just kind of taking a step back and being like, what the fuck? Like (laughs) – who came up with this? And, and, you know, you're not like some of these traditions may make sense on Earth or like if in certain contexts, like religious contexts and, you know, historical periods and whatever. But why would they ever make sense on the ice planet? They don't. And it's like, that's what I really love. Have you ever seen like the
0: earlier episodes, like the original series of Star Trek?
1: No. No. <laughs>
0: Oh, well, like the, one of the things that's really funny is like the show is full of these quote unquote aliens that are just like humans with a weird like face paint on and like a fake nose or right. humans with like a funny wig. These are not the barbarians are not humans that are just blue. They are very right. thoroughly alien from their anatomy to their understanding I mean, of language, everything. <laughs> and it's so fun. And I'm glad that she like goes all yeah. in. These are not just really buff blue humans. They are
1: a completely different species. What I think is funny, though, is when you were saying that, I was like, well, the cover models are. Um, Oh, yes. (laughs) What I I think is funny is like, okay, you know, cover... Illustrations like you—you you have some limitations, right? Like, okay, I yes. have to go find some like stock photography, and then I'm gonna go in Photoshop and make them blue and add some horns and like throw in a tail or something. Exactly. So, um, <laughs> so I do find it kind of hilarious. Like, the writing has built this whole world, and then it's like, and that's just a dude on the cover with some photoshopped horns. <laughs> I had
0: recently tweeted out one of these hands and I was like, these covers keep lying to me because he had five fingers and the aliens are supposed to have four. (gasps) They only have four? I never got that in this book. I don't think it comes up in this one because like, I feel like at this point, I I don't think we ever discussed (laughs) hands in this one.
1: Well, Asha wouldn't think it's weird, unlike the, the human women might comment upon it. But why would Asha be like, and he had four fingers like that, that'd be like, I don't know, just pointing out something absurdly, you know. Usual. Yeah,
0: you're, yeah. My my other date had five fingers, and I yeah, something like <laughs> right. that. Yeah. So this whole gift exchange. Well, this is the gift exchange is sort of why Claire reaches out to Asha to begin with. She's mm-hmm. in her cave with her mate. Um, her mate is Erever, Erevin. Her child is Erever. And so he's like, hey, Asha's having a hard time, and I think you should, you know, sort of have her help you with this whole. This whole thing. He's the one who kind of says it first explicitly in the book. Asha needs a friend. I think he says something like,
1: she's, Yeah,
0: she's been so lonely since the humans have arrived. Um, she used to have all the males to herself. And then when she was almost over her grieving, many new males, ar- many new females arrive. They're all friends with mm-hmm. each other and have their own customs. They share stories and talk and do chores together. They sit together by the fire. They are all friends. And it is something Asha has never had. So. This yeah. is what plants the idea in Claire's head to like really make that out, to really reach out to Asha and make her feel more a part of the tribe.
1: And that was, I, I like the way that came about in the story because um, Erevan had been working with Himalo on a roof. And so they had kind of talked and it was clear that Himalo was worried about Asha. And so I feel like the way that conversation came about was really organic. And um, what I really thought was interesting is, so there was actually an author's note about why Claire was given a point of view in this book. And um, I highlighted it. It was, um, so this is Ruby Dixon basically saying, I felt like part of Asha's story was that she'd walled herself off from the tribe and the new human population for so long that she was more alone than ever. And I wanted to give her a friend. And, and, and I love that, you know, Asha says at, various points in this friendship, like she feels like she's a good balance to Claire. Like Claire is kind of quiet and Mm -hmm. she likes, she likes Claire. Um, She doesn't seem to, she's not too fond of some of the other humans who like talk too much according to her. (laughs) And so her and Claire are a good pair. And also I think what she needed more than anything at this point of her recovery or like her healing from this really traumatic event was she needed to feel needed and, um, you know, this whole holiday thing, uh, it, it gave her an opportunity to be useful and kind of reintegrate. And she, she feels like it's so sweet. There's this point where Claire first comes to her and Claire says, oh, Erevin um, said that you're great at getting people to listen to you and I'm not so great at that sort of thing. And um, Asha says, I had no idea he thought so highly of me. Warmth blooms in my belly. Perhaps she's right. Perhaps this is something I would be good at. And it's just, I mean, she really did need a friend and then she, she needed to feel useful. And this is like the perfect opportunity for her to reintegrate and to kind of go around and be talking to people and feel useful.
0: Yes, it's really sweet when you sort of read how she sort of like perks up at the idea of taking part in this project and and like she decides she's going to make sure it's a great success. And it's just really, it's really endearing. You're really cheering for her. Well, I guess we need to say, because it does come up later plot-wise, they are fixing these roofs because the village is new. And so, not new. Himalo is the tanner. He's the leather maker. And so all of these caves, all of these houses have leather roofs including ashes which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably jumping the gun. So let me slow down. I feel very <laughs> This one because it's not very linear. There's a lot that's happening all at once. And so it's like yeah. when do we talk about like Claire's whole thing, which I guess we should just
1: put at the end because it's a completely separate plot line. So like this... the whole like the Christmas or holiday Yeah. Yeah, the
0: secret packages she starts getting. She's like, who's giving oh, me these right. secret packages? Yeah, that feels completely separate. So we'll focus on Asha and Himalo. So, yeah, so they start going out and like recruiting. I don't know why I picture them both with clipboards. There are no clipboards on the ice planet, <laughs> but they just, it's very cute how like official they both are. They're going out and they're like telling people about the gift giving exchange and partnering people up. And so mm-hmm. we go with them as they go to Himalo. and he is like, He's not here for it. He's not here for this gift exchange thing. He he basically is like, if you have time to give... He basically, if you have time to lean, you have time to clean them. Like, that's what he <laughs> says to them. Um, He's like, if you're bored, we've got plenty of chores you can do, yada, yada, yada. And this is where we see how Asha is a good fit, as you were saying, because Claire gets kind of cowed by him instantly, and Asha's not having it. She's like, right, we're doing this to improve the morale. It's the brutal season. Everyone's, you know, stir crazy and restless. And so he decides, he goes along with it, basically he says
1: if it's important to Asha it's important to me and that's what convinces him to do it. I think that he actually like feels defensive like oh they're like roping Asha into this absurd thing and he's like feeling defensive for her and then he re- and then he kind of catches on. He's like, "Oh, okay, no, this is great. It's good for her to feel needed. And and she needs a friend. Okay." And then he starts to go along with it. But he and he's like, sure, I'll I'll make presents for this other person. But don't you worry. Like this is in his head. I'm going to make even better presents for Asha.
0: Yes. Oh, well, because he gets partnered up with Malak, who we get a little hint of this later when she talks about the loss of her baby. Malak was the other single lady in the tribe. So she does. She says she's always sort of felt maybe a sense of competitiveness with Malak. And then after she lost her baby, she felt a bit of resentment because she's like, she didn't do, like, did she do as much as she could to save her? And I think she realizes it's a little unfair because her baby was so small, but she still has that, yeah. like, it's not rational and it's it makes sense. She
1: still does sort of have that bit of resentment. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, with mela So the situation was that the sequi uh, you know, there were very few women of childbearing age and, you know, to be mated to, and... Um, So that's how Asha grew up as like the thing that makes you special is just that you exist. And, you know, she kind of like took advantage of that and enjoyed the attention. And but I believe I mean, like, basically, there's this idea that what made her special was her ability to bear children and be mated to somebody. And then so first of all, she loses her kit which is like blow number one. Like the one thing that we thought you were good for, you you can't do. And then all these human women start showing up. And so now she's not even special as like, you know, a sexual partner or, it, I mean, I feel like it's just compounding. And I feel like part of Asha's journey in this book was like realizing that like her worth in this world, in life, was not like just as you know, a maker of children um, and that what made her special was not just that she was like a a woman on this planet, like kind of kind of growing a sense of self and identity um, in addition. To, I mean, she really does want to be a mother and, you know, like that's it. That is really important to her. But I think just like growing her sense of self to include other things that make her who she is and worthwhile and worth loving in addition to, you know, her desire to nurture a child and care for others, you know, that that she intrinsically had value. Yes.
0: And I think is a big part of that because they sort of, he talks and he tells her like, I loved you for you. It, it wasn't just because, you know, you, we we're going to have babies and have kids. He's, he talks about how he sort of admired her from afar. It's really sweet. He's a really...
1: Yeah. These
0: men are really good. I'm telling you about the lovey-dovey stuff. <laughs> <laughs> turns out I was right we do need to mention the, rif- the r- ripped roof because because <laughs> Asha before they go over to see Himalo she starts like sort of slashing and ripping her own roof and mm-hmm. we don't when it happens, we're not really given – even though we're in her perspective, we still don't get why she's doing it. It's just sort of – Actually,
1: you know, so she says right before that, uh, I think of Hemalo and how he needs to feel needed, how I have not given that to him, how strange things are between us. I get up out of bed, move to the wall where the TP top is tightly lashed down, and begin to pick the seams apart.
0: <laughs> okay, so I guess I skimmed over – that is really – it's just so – They both need each other. They both really want to be together. But like their pride, their pride and their hurt is just what's really, they've got to get over it. Mm -hmm. On that, I feel like we're all over the place. And that's fine because this book doesn't really have like... (laughs) Can
1: can I just say, sorry, I guess this is how I do my podcast because I'm like, oh, we'll just talk about shit. And like, well, I was like, who cares about the plot? (laughs) And that's
0: fine. At this point, I feel like... There is a big plot thing where they go to the cave and we can get there, but like everything leading yeah. up to that, I'm like, they're just hanging out. But there is right. this moment that I want to read, like when she's discussing the secret Santa exchange with Humalo and he's um, and because I said pride and I jumped to one of my highlighted quotes. And, you know, he was sort of thinking to himself, ask me to return, I beg silently. Tell me that you miss me in your furs, that you miss the warmth of our bodies together. Tell me that you miss oh. my smile like I miss yours. All will be forgotten in an instant and we can be back together tonight, now, in the next moment. But Asha only lifts her chin, her eyes narrowing at me. She hears my song and she does not like it. So like, so this oh. happens because they can still, they're, they're still resonance mates, even though mm-hmm. the baby passed away, they're still, you know, resonated to each other so when they get too close their quees start you know doing their little song and you can tell like they still do want to be together it's just their pride and he will apparently happily throw it away if she's the one to say he wants
1: him back and it's like but guy what's ri- keeping you mm-hmm. yeah, um, from saying is that not his pride well so I mean it's complicated with him because he thinks that it is actually in her best interest for him to not Put his pride on the line and ask for her back, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. And but it also is protective for him, too, right? Like uh, to not put himself out there and be like, can I come back or you want to come back? You know, that's true,
0: because we do when they argue later in the book in the cave, he does say, like, you did tell me many times how much you didn't want to be resonated to me. So, yeah. So that's and she's like, uh,
1: no, you're right. I did say that.
0: Yeah, she, <laughs> you know what? She owns, she owns her past mis- mistakes. <laughs> Our girl is not above. You know what? I did that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So during this, so they have their big house So basically the big thing that happens that we can probably just get to is him. I guess, sees the rip in the roof. It's, he goes, he's looking at the roof. Asha has come into her tr- her um, house, too. She sees him there. And they begin arguing or, you know, going back and forth when they begin resonating. And Asha is terrified. And she sort mm-hmm. of tells him, she's like, I need time. I can't deal with this right now. And she goes to her room and sort of locks herself away. And
1: meanwhile, he's got a raging heart on. And <laughs> she is just like wet as a waterfall. And... <laughs> <laughs> like it's got them <laughs> they're in the grip. I know. I I find this this is one of the 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 whole resonance and the sort of like, "Oh, we basically are cats that have come into heat and we have to fuck." It, this is this is one of the parts that like it bothers me on some level, and I don't know how I feel about it because like Okay. <clears throat> okay. So we have this this like cr- this fantasy world, right? um but it is a very cis hetero fantasy and it relies a lot on gender essentialism and a gender binary and like at the end of the day i do not expect one series to be all things to all people but in this exaggerated version of that cis hetero fantasy of like the female gaze where there where i mean like for example The female gaze where like all the dudes are just like super attractive and ripped and can like throw them around and and whatever, all these things. I mean, that's like that's a version of the cishet female gaze. There's not a lot of room for nuance. And like there is nuance, but like not really at those levels. And like, what if one of the women of childbearing age didn't want to have a child, but she resonates? Like It's this idea that her body is going to overrule, or more specifically, the Kui is going to overrule her own desires. Right. And, like, nope, you just got to have babies now because this parasite says you should. And, like, like, I I know that in this world we're supposed to believe that the Kui, like, have their best interests at heart. And (laughs) they're, like, the matchmakers of this planet. And, like, it's all going to work out fine. But, I mean... It's also kind of abusive, like, oh, no, now you're going to have a baby and I'm going to like torture you. I'm going to torture your body until you go have sex with this guy and, you know, he impregnates you like that's a little problematic. (laughs) I think that's I think that's totally valid because like I will say like
0: the whole baby thing, like I don't I don't feel I don't know, like I get it in the terms of world building, like this worm, this parasite's only concern is propagating, you know, species. And to do that, you gotta have a baby. It doesn't care if you're ready for a baby. It doesn't care if you want the baby. It's only concern is making babies. But I do, as like the reader, yeah, I get that. I don't like the fact that sometimes there are characters who are like, you know what? I don't know if I wanna be a mom or I don't know if I wanna be a mom right now. And I just, I guess I don't like the emphasis so much on the kids. Like I'm not... I'm not a real, like, I would like to have kids one day myself, but I'm not a really big, like, baby person, I guess is what I'm saying. So me as a reader, it doesn't even seem to be that big of a reward. Like, when they're mm-hmm. all excited about, like, oh, we're
1: going to have a baby. I was like, oh, yay. <laughs> like, Well, right. I and I feel I, I, get I feel conflicted about this. And, like, you know, I mean, I, I have a kid. Um, I like her a lot. I'm very <laughs> happy about the fact. She's, she's um, fine, yeah. Yeah, she's great. Um happy to have her as a member of the family. Uh, she was, you know, <laughs> planned and wanted and all that. Um, but having a kid is a lot of work and very emotionally taxing and physically taxing and, yes. and all of those things, all those things that we know. In this world, I get that, like, you know, nobody's going to become a corporate attorney on the ice planet. <laughs> like, you know, when it comes to career ambitions, it's it's a different world i mean honestly they're in survival mode and part of survival mode for a species is like procreating and having children but there is and and i believe some of the other books like some of the other females in this book are like hunters or like have more like you know quote unquote careers and um contribute in ways beyond just um <clears throat> i don't know bearing children cooking gathering food. And and, I mean, all those things are valuable, but I don't... One thing that isn't really explored, and this is not the book to explore it in, is the Earth Women. Like, I know that they were all, like, 22, which is, you know, like, maybe kind of pre-career or whatever, but, like, did they have, like, hopes and dreams and career ambitions? And, like, I'm just imagining myself being dropped on the ice planet, and I'm like, I do not know if this life would fulfill me. You know, I think so. I It feels like I can't do any of these
0: later episodes without talking about the spinoff series. But it's really interesting to see how she how Ruby Dixon has taken some like clearly she did the series. She took notes and then she did Ice Home and she like addressed that because you're right mm-hmm. in this book. A lot of the women, they were very young. I think at this point now they're not that young anymore because it's been like years. So may some they're maybe so they're like.
1: Twenty
0: no. six. Oh wait, are they in their thirties? <laughs> I would say like they're in their thirties. I think they've been here maybe like um either late twenties, maybe early thirty, because they've been on here a long time. Time is a wobbly thing on the ice planet.
1: But don't you? Isn't there also like I mean, so depending on how fast the sun moves around the planet, like a year on this planet could be less than a year on Earth. So mm-hmm. like in Earth years, they could still only be like you know twenty eight, but on this planet, like years are years and seasons are at a faster clip I don't know
0: yeah and that's why i'm like ooh it's it's a mess but i'm just kind of going like cuz there are children who were infants in one book and like now they're like walking talking like kids so like time has really passed and so in this plant when they first came, they were really young. And as far as career ambitions, you know, one girl worked at a bank. I think that's what we heard. Another one, um, she was a mechanic. So they had jobs, but we didn't hear much about career ambitions. In the other series, like these, a lot of these women. One is like a paleo, um, not a paleo. Um, a it's some fancy. She's a botanist, basically. She has a PhD and okay. like botany another woman another woman is so resentful she's on the ice planet because she was a writer and she had finally scored like that that career changing book deal like she was going to be it's implied she's going to be like the new jk rowling so she does address that in that series and a lot of them like it's how do i it's like dealing with how do i deal with the fact that now i'm on this ice planet now you know i'm expected to like get mated and have a baby and so it is interesting sort of to see how she grows from like the original series to the later one because Mm. you saying that like it it does get there are a lot more like career women in that book or women who had things they wanted to do that you know maybe didn't involve you know a husband and kids there is also a girl who is freakishly happy to be there, and I cannot wait for her story because I need to know what that's <laughs> about. Like, right now, my, my prediction is, like, I don't know, unless she had a mafia hit on her, I don't know why she's so happy to be on this ice I- planet.
1: You know, that's an interesting thing to play with because there are people for whom, like, life on Earth, the the situation on, li- on Earth is either not a great fit for kind of, like, their personality or... Or, like, their situation on Earth was kind of shitty. Like, that, I mean, there's a lot of people for whom life on Earth is maybe worse than the situation on the ice planet. Especially if they become, like, a prized, you know, type of person. Yes. Who is cherished and treated as, like,
0: this, you know, precious thing that, like, you know, has to, we're going to make sure you're fed, we're going to make sure you're housed. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can't wait to figure out what her bit is about. So yeah, I I feel like it's just going to get harder to avoid comparing it to Ice Home as we get closer to, because we're starting to reach the point where they sort of connect. So mm-hmm. I guess this is my apology for the rest of this, the series. It's I'm intrigued.
1: Yeah. You're, you're just making me want to actually read it. <laughs> Ice Home is like... So this one,
0: I feel like, and I've said this before too, but I'm going to say it again. This one, I feel like she was really finding her way, feeling things out. She's like, I'm going to explore this world. And then Ice Home came. She's like, okay, I, I got these notes. She went full 11. She's like, it's like, we're going to have women from all over the, not all over the world, because they're still all American and speak English, but like from all different backgrounds. Some are going to be like, they're not all going to be 22. Um, there are some of them are gonna have careers, some of them are gonna have really big families that they're gonna have to deal with the loss with, some of them are gonna have, you know, mental health issues. It's she went all <laughs> she went full in. And I was kinda happy for it because it's really it's really a really fun thing to read about.
1: I love to see that evolution, and I totally don't wanna sound like I'm being like, well, why doesn't this book do this and that? I mean, I think that mm-hmm. these are all just interesting things to explore, and I'm I'm really intrigued to hear how it's explored in different books. And again, I mean like this book this one in the series where you're literally dealing with two um, inhabitants, original inhabitants of this planet, like they are Sequi, like, it is legitimately not the place to explore that. <laughs> like, what about Earth women ambitions? But... Um, you know, so I, I, I'm I, not at all, like, criticizing this. I'm just, like, it's just a thing I thought about.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I don't think there's a... Pro- like, I criticize things I like all the time. That's what this whole podcast is. So I don't think mm-hmm. it's even... That is even an invalid thing to say. I think kind of looped into that, I think this book is probably the turning point where she does... I get the impression, and I don't want to assume or put, you know, motivations on Ruby Dixon that aren't there, but, like, I think the fact that she did decide to do a story that where neither one of the pairing is human mm-hmm. is also sort of reflective of that, that she's really sort of being aware of the universe she's in and how she can tell those different stories and how she can build on that. Because I feel like this is all just, right. you can't do everything at once. It's sort of like as she does the series, she's seeing what things maybe weren't addressed. And like, I really feel like, this is the book where I feel like she really starts doing that because I never expected <laughs> for the two um, non-human characters to could get their own book. So I guess... On that, so a confession, when I was an earlier romance reader, I used to read some of those racist Cassie Edwards books. Do you remember those?
1: No. Oh, well,
0: they're basically like the Native American white lady books.
1: Oh, uh, OK. I've definitely yeah. read like, you know, <clears throat> the um like Native American... Uh, the term that is often used in these racist books is like half-breeds and like they're they're terrible like yes upon upon like being older and wiser i'm like oh dang that was racist
0: oh yeah same here and one terrible racist thing they do is they usually treat the native women they don't treat them the same way they treat like the white woman love interest and i guess i had sort of and this is and i don't know this might even be rude to me make the comparison for this fictional alien race but I guess one thing I'm glad Ruby Dixon does do is she treats, oh, now I do feel kind of, maybe I shouldn't, but I was just going to say, I like the fact that the human women are not put on this pedestal because they're human. They're not this super special group and like all the Native women who are already there, we're not going to treat them as just like, oh, we don't we don't need to get into that. Like, they're just here. They're just others. It's these super special, at the time, mostly white women we're gonna focus on and then the other the other original alien women we're not gonna does this make sense? And maybe I'll cut this yeah, out. As no, I'm no, saying, no. it feels I, a little condescending to compare. I totally
1: I totally hear what you're saying. It's the it's the like first of all, the otherness of the um Ice Planet Barbarians, like mm-hmm. like, oh, like they're just here to there's you know, they're presented as like these primitive-ish men. And I think that Ruby Dixon actually does a good job of like fleshing them out as like not just being big lumbering idiots with like great dicks. Like <laughs> they are they are they become true partners to these women um and like their relationships are real. And I but I think they're yes, like there is that risk of like you know, like oh, and then they get these tiny little earth women who come and, you know, usurp the position of the native women and yeah I think it's totally important for like yes okay like you know the sequi women young women were are rare and there are fewer of them and that is kind of what creates the environment where these earth women are like needed to kind of like continue to perpetuate the species or this, I don't know, species group, this group of people, this this culture? I don't know. Um, Well, you can say the tribe. The tribe, yes. Thank you. Um, But, like, okay, but then, like, what about the women who are still there? Like, now what are they, like, hot garbage? Like, and do they not also deserve love? And is everybody just chasing after, like, the new little earth ladies? Like, I think it is really, this book is super important on that, in that aspect, and, um... And I think in particular, like having two, like I could imagine a plot about losing a child between an Earth woman and um, a Sequi man would be a very different story because it's not a, it's not a story about losing a child at that point and grief. It's, it starts getting into like, well, maybe these two, you know, species cannot breed and... That, you know, like it starts getting complicated by sort of like these biological questions. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think this was exactly the place to explore this. And I think also, again, like this is a culture that prizes like having children and and that is that seems very much to be a woman's role on this in this culture. And I think kind of addressing that is really important. So I I think it was exactly the right story for this couple, and I'm really glad that um, a Sakui couple was in this series. Yes. I was
0: truly surprised by it. So, I guess I really want to get to this, the Metlac thing.
1: The Metlacks. I yeah. love them.
0: <laughs> so... I love that. So Himalo like storms out or not storms out. Um, Himalo leaves because he's, you know, it's just like when they broke up earlier. He wants to protect her. He's like, she doesn't want resonance. I'm just going to go away and put distance. I really don't know what his long-term plan was.
1: I feel like he did not think this out, but that's fine. His brain's a little muddled at, the <laughs> he's, point, at this point. He's, he's legitimately, like, staggering through the snow and, like, every five feet masturbating. <laughs> like, yes. I was like, where where are you going to go, my friend? Um, and Asha, I
0: love that Asha, like, in as opposed to, like, I guess their earlier break, she's like, I'm going after him. She's still mad. She's not, she's so mad at him, but she's like, I'm going after him. I am following him. And she does. And yeah, so, she's like, how
1: dare you leave again, exactly, you jerk?
0: Exactly. So she storms out and she comes across him. He's been sort of knocked out. And there are two starving Metlex who are digging through his supplies. And she's terrified he has died. She just mm-hmm. thinks to herself, he is not dead. He cannot be dead. So she chases them off, picks him up. I guess picks him up. Maybe she drags him. But and sort of drags him to a hunter cave to care for him. And I just, it was just, I love that she went after him. He he did his thing again. He repeated his actions, but she didn't. And it's sort of like this, this first step in, you know, them learning how to deal with each other in hard times. Because <laughs> she's like, no, you're going to have to go after him. Because he might, if every time he runs, you might just have to go after him.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and. I think this does actually address, I mean, when, when you get paired up with somebody because the cooey tells you you need to get to it, it doesn't exactly foster healthy communication between people when you're just told, like, well, here's your biological imperative. Just, you know, go do it like bunny rabbits and multiply. Give us a
0: baby in three years, yeah.
1: Exactly. Like I think that this is and this is a hallmark of second chance romance in, you know, the romance genre is I think a lot of times it, it's an examination of like why did this couple not work the first time and how do we believe that this time around it's different and the the steps that they take to start to communicate better I think are critical and um, I don't know if I'm able to find the quote at the moment but they start to be like very frank with each other like okay we said we would talk to each other and not close ourselves off and um, You know, like that we would just like say what we're thinking instead of running away and ignore and trying to ignore how we feel. Like they, it's really sweet to see, and I think that that's what makes this a believable, um, you know, second chance. It's it's not just that Asha had to get over her grief, and Himalo had to get over his grief or whatever. However, he was dealing with it, it was legitimately that they were not able to communicate with each other and support each other through that grief. You know.
0: And I think one of the reasons you can't find the quote is because it happens multiple times. Like it's sort of this theme. So like after this book is in two parts, the tribe and then the hunter cave. And when they're in Mm -hmm. that hunter cave and they're by themselves and they really do start digging into their issues, it's done very well. Like it's very healthy. They say multiple times, like you're pushing me. He'll tell her like you're or she'll tell him you're pushing me away again or he'll tell her you're you're being, you know, too harsh or something. It's said multiple times, basically, like they're really, they really dig into it. They have multiple conversations about what went wrong between them. And you really get the sense that they're learning how to better, you know, be there and emotionally support each other. And it's Mm -hmm. really sweet to see. I'm going to try and find one of the scenes too. Because I think the first one is right after he wakes up in the cave. And um, so we should say in the cave, Asha finds a baby metlek. Oh my God. And she gets Very, very (laughs) attached to it. He's starving. We learn eventually that it is the child of the two starving Metlax that Mm -hmm. um, knocked Himalo over the head.
1: And she does not want to leave him behind. I thought that this was this was super interesting because I've heard the discussions about the Metlax in previous episodes (laughs) and how like how the um, the Sequi believe that the Metlax are basically like not dumb sentient. Beast. Like they're just mm-hmm. dumb animals. And I love that the way we we as the reader start to understand kind of their sentience and their um, sort of emotional depth is through a mother. Like Asha connects with the Metlak Mother because she sees that the Metlak Mother truly cares for her young, and at first she's like, "How? What an idiot! Like she left this baby alone in this cave in, cave, and it was going to starve." But then she realizes that they were leaving the baby there so so that because she couldn't carry the baby while injured and get food, and so she had to take the risk of leaving the baby so they could get food because they were starving, mm-hmm. and and like that connection that she makes with the Metlak Mother as a way. Not only, I mean, obviously that speaks to Asha's characterization. Like, she just wants to really be able to be, be needed to, like, a, you know, a child, really. And she she's like, I'll take care of this baby. I'll save it. But then when she realizes the mother loves the baby, she's like, oh, I can't take this baby away from its mother. The mother loves her baby. And, oh my god, the Metlacs have emotional depth and yes, are more, I don't know, um... Like, I, I keep using the word sentient. Like, I don't know a better word there for, like, sort of intelligent and emotional.
0: Asha has a really good quote that I think works. She says, Shasek is not a Sakwi, not human, but a people all the same.
1: A people, like, yeah. yeah.
0: Because we, yes, earlier in the books, and it's and we as the reader for the long time, because we're getting this through the Sakwi's perspective, we're told the Metlacs are sort of just, like, dumb beasts. They're very unpredictable. They're very dangerous. The um, so We really look down on them because they're dirty. They're filthy. Um, they're mm-hmm. afraid of fire, which sort of shows like a lack of intelligence. So they don't have a lot of respect for them. And it's not until I think it's been recently when some of the human women have had more interactions with them that we start to see that there is a bit more of um, an intelligence to the metlax They live, we learn they live in groups. Um, we learn that they, well, it's hinted. It's not really, we don't really get back to it. Sense, but that they don't speak as language, they sign. Mm. So they use like hand gestures to speak as opposed to, um, you know, speaking vocally. And so we do sort of get this hint that there is more to this creature than what the
1: Sakui have told us. Because the Sakui basically have not taken the time to. Told people that the Metlax
0: are the people. We're just gonna have to deal with that. They are the people of the ice planet because they right. feel sort of
1: primatey.
0: Like that's the primate that might eventually. Well,
1: and because the um, the Sequi are not native to this planet, right? No. So they're like colonizers.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a. I mean, basically, that feels very harsh. But yes, I mean, they're literally. Yes
1: colonizers they yes. don't see themselves as such they see themselves as like I don't know refugees or whatever right like they they crash landed or something
0: yeah these can the ones we're with I don't think they view them because they've been there so long at this point
1: right well they right I mean like you know and I don't think they I even was knew
0: until the women came and told them you came from a ship from outer space and crash landed here and they're like
1: what <laughs> exactly <laughs> I mean but like right I mean like I was born in America mm-hmm. but like uh you know my ancestors were I mean late stage colonizers but yeah uh yeah doesn't mean it's not true just cuz I don't I think I was born here I was born yeah. here yeah I was going to make the same thing it's like I was born here technically but
0: I know yeah these guys don't even have that though they thought they didn't realize they were not from the ice planet until the women told them <laughs> Um, but yeah, so they find this starving baby and they have this, the mother and the father are starving. The mother is injured and Himalo isn't here for it at first. He's like, she's taken this filthy creature before he realizes it's a Sakui baby. He does have this moment where, or that it's a metlike baby. He does have this moment where he's like, did I have amnesia? Did I lose a few
1: years? Is this our baby? <laughs> oh yeah, no, right. He's, she's like holding it and he's like, what
0: the fuck? He has
1: <laughs> that
0: freak out is hilarious. So, and then, so she hands him the baby, and then he starts beginning to note the different, or the similarities between the Metlac baby and, like, a Sakui baby.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and she cleaned th- uh, the baby, and they're like, oh, it's not so stinky, and it's kind of, oh, it's kind of cute when it's clean. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, but she's really attached, and eventually, you so said it, she has to give this baby back, Um, and she doesn't want to. And when she does, it's, she takes it very hard. It sort of feels like she's lost two babies now. And I think she doesn't say as much, but it feels because she cries and she sort of breaks down and Himelo has to comfort her.
1: Mm -hmm. And she wants to make sure that the Metlat couple can, I mean, they do not seem to be the brightest. Um, And, (laughs) and so they, they like spend all day, like circling around an area with food because they're like, oh my God, like there's food here. Like stay here, stop wandering around the icy non-food areas looking for food. Um, I like and they're how you said they're not the brightest. It's like, aw. I mean, they're they're they're, they're not. not they're not without feeling, but no. Do, I mean, do they have the keenest survival instincts uh, and critical thinking skills? Maybe not. They're doing um, their best. Yes. Right. So they're they they really want to make sure that this Metlac couple can feed their baby because she she's like, OK, I get it. I need to give this baby back to its mother, but I'm going to do what I can to make sure that they don't all three starve to death uh, out here because that's what I'm going to do for this baby.
0: Yeah, I did want to sort of jump back to like because this I think when she cries and breaks down is a really big sort of like healing moment for them because it's when they both sort of come together in a it's when they really address the loss of their own baby because Mm -hmm. she's crying and she goes, everything I love leaves me. And he goes, I am here. My big hand, his big hand rests on my lower back and he squeezes my side. Feel me against you. I shake my head. So sad that I feel it deep in my soul. You left me too. Always you leave me. And sort of, they have this sort of like moment where they have to address what went wrong between them because he sort of admits to her, I left because you were hurting. And I thought me being there was just making you hurt worse. And so, or what does he say? Like, even if, and even if you did not come back to me, if you were happy, I could live with that. It is your sadness that tears me apart. And sort of, they have this sort of like real discussion over how they treated each other and how they both reacted over the loss of their baby. And it was really well done. Like, I don't know, I don't know what Ruby Dixon's background is or how she explores like the more mental health, like aspects of her writing, like if she maybe has a sensitive sensitivity reader or something, but it just felt really well done and such a good example of like a healthy conversation following, you know, a moment of grief. And I was really proud of, proud is a weird word, but I was proud of them. I was like, you go guys.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think kind of um, at one point, um, he's like, you want to be a mother? And she goes, I am a mother. My kit is dead. I still miss her. I think that there is, I think what it deals with really well is this idea of, um, you know, this this like get over it idea that some people have like, okay, like just move on. You can have another baby. It's okay. And I mean, I think of particularly people who experience like miscarriage or um, or a, you know, have a child who dies very young. Well-meaning people say all sorts of insensitive things like, it's okay, you're still young, you can have another, or I don't know, things like that that are, they're really insensitive and cruel because I I am a mother, I did have a baby, and you know, it's not like I'm not a mother now, it's just that my baby is dead and not, not here with us, and that's horrifying, and nobody, you do not get over that. It's not something you get over. You will always carry it with you. It's just a matter of um, you know, how how do you go on from that point? And, you know, I think you people need support. Um, they need appropriate support. They need people to not just say, Okay, move on, get past this, but people to be there with them and say, you know, yes, that, you know, I will miss that child every day. Um, you are. It's okay for you to feel sad. It's okay for you to feel the way you feel. You're not being unreasonable to be sad. Um, and yes, maybe we do want to, you know, move forward with our lives and have another child, but that doesn't mean that we're, like, erasing, you know, that other child. Mm-hmm. And sorry to go back to the quote, but they almost said
0: exactly what you said. And she goes, I am still going to miss Hashala. That was the baby's name. And he goes, I know. And now mm-hmm. Shashak too. He was mine, even if I only had him a, for a day. I barely had Hashala for longer. And he says, you can miss them both, he agrees. But you cannot allow it to destroy your life. And I think that's sort of mm-hmm. the crux of it. So yeah, I thought that whole right. conversation was just done so well. Like I was like, yes, this is. Like, it didn't skim over her hurt. It didn't minimize it. It didn't try to reduce it or say, like, they had another baby happily ever after and they were both, you know, they both moved on. Like, it just really addresses it in a really realistic, healthy way. And I was like, this was so well done.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that um, <clears throat> they, it, it's a story about grieving. I mean, like, it's a second chance romance, but it's also a story about grief. and um And I think it is like a motherhood story too. Just being a mother, like reading this story is, it just pulls at so many heartstrings, you know? Um, I mean, I just really feel for this character and I, I think it's beautiful that, I mean, again, we talked about this earlier, but especially beautiful that Ruby Dixon chose the character for us to have, to go through this journey with being one of the quote unquote aliens, you know? Um, I, I, think that that just really does so much to make it clear that, you know, the Sequi, like, as much as, like, there's a little bit of this, like, tee-hee-hee, like, you know, oh, they're different in these kind of, uh, titillating ways. Also, I mean, just, they're people. They're, uh, they have emotions and they, you know, they have the same emotions that humans do.
0: She sort of, she has that little moment with Claire where Quera's like, well, you wouldn't be human. And then Asha sort of laughs Because I guess <laughs> yeah. Claire's just used to using that expression. And Asha kind of laughs. She's like, I am definitely not human. But um, I am Sakui and that wouldn't make me Sakui either. Or something along those lines. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it's just, it's a really cool thing she did.
1: Well, and maybe, I mean, in relation to the Metlax too. I mean, like what makes a people a people, you know? Mm-hmm. Like just this, just this larger question of kind of like, who who should we care for? Who should we care about in this way? And, uh, you know, who's, who is allowed to sort of, like, care for their young in a way that we recognize as caring for their – as loving, I guess.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I love – I kind of love the little Metluck family because they've been just reduced to, like, dumb, stinky beast for so long, and it's kind of neat to see them be developed into something more, so – they do. They leave roots for the family and they try to like, basically they're like leaving. It's like when you leave a little trail of treats for your dog or something to get him in the cage. That's essentially what they're <laughs> doing with roots. They're like leaving a trail to like lead the family to a more fertile or like just a place where there's more food available so they can forage and survive. Mm-hmm. So um, and then eventually they have to return back to the tribal cave mm-hmm. because Asha doesn't want to go. She's
1: sort of been putting it off for a while. Right because they've had this uh, forced proximity and it's like, oh mm-hmm. God do I have to go back to this place where I felt all this pain I'm in direct confrontation with a bunch of people who I maybe haven't been that pleasant to for a long time and I don't feel that connected to and oh like and also I just want to like we just want to fulfill resonance, right um and which she's also afraid of.
0: yeah, I don't get why they went back to the cave to, like it seems to me like when you have more privacy out, but that's again not that's just another decision.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. But um, they started exploring kissing
1: before oh, they yes. head back to mouth the Yes. Mouth mating.
0: Yes. Mouth mating. I love like it's it was. So this book doesn't have as much like it had sex, but it didn't have as much sex as some of the other books do because I guess she's admitted in others' authors' notes that she's it's sort of a balance when she has these really heavy topic these really heavy books you can't go crazy with the sex because it, it just doesn't fit. So mm-hmm. we get like a kissing scene, an oral scene, and then I think a resonance fulfillment scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, the kissing scene I thought was kind of adorable because like neither one of them really know how to kiss well because it's not <laughs> something they do as sakui And they're like, "How was that?" She's like, "I don't know." It's like, "Oh, I think the humans do it with their mouths open." Like,
1: "Oh, let's try that." It's just,
0: <laughs> it's so cute. It's really
1: it close. was really cute, and and this is like another romance novel convention where um, that. Uh, I've seen played with in various ways where like they've done, they've had lots of sex and um, you know, but I I believe like kissing in romances is held up as like the ultimate form of intimacy. And, um, and sometimes it happens after like hardcore banging has happened. And it's, and it's usually like these two people have now connected in a different way. And so I liked I liked seeing that from sort of like a meta perspective, like, you know, just just with the context of romance, using kissing in that way. Like, these are people who do not, kissing is not like a thing they do. And they're like, I don't know, let's try this. And they like it. And they're like, oh, I get why the humans do this now. <laughs> they just kiss and they sort of leave it at
0: that for a bit. I guess there is... And they decide not to stress about fulfilling residence right away, which I also thought was good. Because, like, you all are dealing with a lot, baby.
1: hmm <laughs> But,
0: yeah, they... <laughs> but they head back to the cave, and that's... And they decide to fulfill residence and they eventually, they have three years later because the Suckwee women gestate for three years. God bless them. They do. They oh, have... those poor ladies. I feel so bad for them. Well, that was what kind of made it funny in the earlier books because the human women are like, we have no idea how long we're going <laughs>
1: to well, be pregnant with these kids. And and again, that's this is not the story of this book, but I was super curious. I was like, does it cover at any point kind of like how are how are these two species compatible like, uh, breeding-wise, like, it, it feels like, wouldn't, wouldn't, like, Sakui human babies have, like, different gestation periods than Sakui? Because, like, wouldn't it be somewhere in the middle? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't know. I just have questions. Well, (laughs) and they, they sort of do, some of it gets a little bit hand-waved by the Kui. It's like,
0: if you all weren't compatible, the Kui wouldn't match you, so when it comes to like biological compatibility, that sort of handles that. But yeah, in the earlier books, there's sometimes there's conversations where you hear women who had conceived earlier aren't as far along in their pregnancies as other women. And they're all like, <laughs> what the hell is happening here? And What's then, going like, on? Yeah. They're like, and then like like one of the, the first women in the book The first woman in the book to like have a mate and resonate and all that, I think her child was like the third to be born. So it's like, this is a little, it's a little wacky. And so it (laughs) doesn't explore it in depth, but it does sort of like hang a lampshade on. The gestation thing is all kind of wonky.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Can I just say there was one, I had one line in this whole book that I really just could not get behind. Okay. This is, and this is like, I'm actually like, like this actually bothered me in light, in light of the way everything was very sensitively handled throughout this book. When they fulfill resonance, um, Asha says, give me your seed. Let us be whole again. And Uh, I was like, no, like you are not going to be made whole by having a baby or being pregnant. Right? Like, like wholeness should wholeness as a couple or like as an individual should not be tied to someone's seed or baby. Yeah. Um,
0: and I, I, that's a good point. And I think when I had read it originally, I thought it meant like the the mate the mating being whole again or the reconnection, but being placed that close to the other I really hate the word seed. Being placed <laughs> that close to that part of the sentence does make mm-hmm. it feel like let's have a baby, let's be whole again
1: oh, yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's um, a main criticism of um, infertility plots that end with a baby is, like, not everybody in real life's infertility story ends with a baby. And that doesn't mean that a couple dealing with infer- infertility like isn't a whole couple, they're not a whole family. Um, all of those things, that's, like, just... Kind of a damaging stereotype, um, and and I just feel like for a book that really, and, and I think that this story it, it makes sense for them to end for the story to end with them, you know, having another kit and all of that. Like I'm not criticize. It's it's not like I'm saying like this should have been like a childless happily ever after. Um, but I just think for a book that has handled so much of this so sensitively, that was just a bit of a misstep. Yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. She has to have the baby because of resonance. There have been other times where I yeah. kind of wished,
0: where I wished Ruby Dixon, where a couple did not resonate. I don't know if you heard Kira's book where Kira came to the planet because of an illness as a child. She, for the long, she thought she was sterile. She couldn't have a baby. Mm. And she was, she couldn't, she was worried she couldn't resonate. But I guess the queen fixed things up, which sounds really Ooh. weird, but the Quee fixed it and she eventually does resonate. And that was one where I always kind of wished she had Like where things were just been left as they were. Like maybe the Queen couldn't fix it. Maybe Mm -hmm. she she didn't resonate and she does remain, you know, sterile. But that doesn't mean her relationship with her mate is any less valid. I would have liked to see that.
1: Yeah. Well, and play with the play with the idea of fate and free will. We
0: do have to talk about the, I guess, development of Beck. Beck is such a long like this is a long play for her because his book doesn't come till book 19, but she is Whew. building up his story. No, not 19, 13. Um, um, but she's building up his story now. So Beck and Claire have been characters in this book. We get like cut in, they've been cut in in between Asha and Himala's story. Mm-hmm. And so the long and short of it is, I guess we're just gonna, because it's not that long of a story, really, it's not that much. But mm-hmm. Claire has been receiving these little mystery gifts and at first she thinks it's from her mate. And she's there's this big mystery as to who is leaving her these gifts. And eventually she discovers it's Beck. And Beck is leaving them, because, sort of as an apology. He wants to be friends again. They had a pleasure meeting that did not end well. It wasn't healthy, I think is the best way to say it. She is at first is concerned that he's trying to like court her. And he makes it clear, no, no, that's not what this is about. He just wants things, I think, he wants them to be okay, that expression. He wants them to be cool. Mm-hmm. And I get it. It's a small planet. Like, could you imagine having, like, an animosity with, like, one person in a tribe of, like, 30? It'd be really hard to, like... God, I out. could <laughs>
1: not. I, I would have been ostracized long ago.
0: <laughs> and so he leaves her all these gifts because it's this is not seen in any of the books. It's, it takes place in a novella. So if you're a person who just reads the standalone books, you might have missed this whole story. But basically, Claire and Beck were pleasure mates. Beck was not nice not the nicest to her. He wasn't abusive, but he was like short. When she cried, he would like get really angry. Um, And then she resonated to her mate and she left. And so Mm -hmm. he's been not bitter, but he's been lonely since then. Like we know on this planet, they all just really want to mate. They all want a chance to resonate and have a family. And so this was him, I guess, sort of this was, I guess, begins the rehabilitation of Beck.
1: Yeah. Um, It was an interesting little side story. And I mean, like, I don't, I don't know the other than what you have told me what happened before this and what happens afterwards. I was just kind of like, all right. um." (laughs) But I did want to touch on the Beck Clare story because it's like a
0: solid quarter of the book, maybe. Like, is it? Maybe not a quarter, like 20%. It takes up, we'll be reading Asha, because I remember when I was taking notes, we'd be going along on the Asha and Himala storyline and then this random mystery gift giver Claire's like, back up. like, why am
1: I getting gifts? This is, yes. this is wild. What's happening? Uh, this is unfair. This is not how the game is supposed to go. Like, she's yeah. real. She's a stickler for rules.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. So, I'm like, you know what? This maybe could have been a novella too, but you know what? I'll allow it. I'll allow it. It's I'll fine. Allow it. <laughs> yes. So, but I did just want to talk about that. So, that's what was going on there. So, I guess this is the beginning. Like I said, the redemption of Beck. He gets his... A chance to apologize, they're cool again, because yeah, that has. To, can you imagine how awkward that would be? Like thirty people, one who you like your ex
1: is one of them. You see them every day, and you're like, hey. I know. I could. I. I. There would be so many people I couldn't make eye contact
0: with. <laughs> well, I was gonna say we touched on this in the other episode. Like everyone in this tribe is friend. Like they're all friends, and we're like, is that is that realistic? Everyone is just. But at the same time, there's only 30. And, like, sure, you may not be best friends with everyone. And then I go back again. But, like, do you need to be best friends with everyone? It just, they're very close.
1: Yeah. Well, but where are the old people? Because I, my understanding was there were some older people. But, like, are they, where are they?
0: There are other elders. Like, there's Sakui elders. So, like, I think, like, one of the other characters, Ahako, both of his parents are around. So they're sort of, they're elders. There's another character who is a single hunter man. Mm-hmm. who um he's the one when i talked about the postmenopausal woman who gets a mate he's mm-hmm. her like her sort of mate and then there are other like old men who get mentioned but they don't get their they don't But they're really not get... important because they're because they're old <laughs> yeah they don't get a lot of the limelight i do think she did a christmas story that was one like one of the little baby like one of the little kids like It's really much like a a Grinch. Like there's an old man and he's kind of grumpy and he's like, oh, these human traditions. And and one of the kids like sees that he's grumpy and he's like, I'm going to make a gift for the grumpy, grumpy old man. And he makes him a Christmas gift. And it's like his heart like grew three sizes that day. So he does. (laughs) So one of them does show up in one of those, but for the most part, they're not huge players. But yeah, the parents will sometimes pop up. Like if they have elder parents, they'll pop up and they're hilarious because they're like, Oh, are you all going to go mate? Like going to go have a, you know, going to have sexy times? They're like very upfront about it. They know what's going
1: on. (laughs) I love it. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it it feels like, it feels like because there's so there's such a huge rotating cast of characters in these stories where like people kind of like fade in and out. And it it feels like there's definitely, there's mention made of characters who don't really show up on the page, which is fine. And it's like, they're there, but they're not important to this story. So you're not really going to see them like it just doesn't they just don't matter because you kind of can't mention like if you wrote a if you wrote like a contemporary where somebody's like walking down the street in New York City they wouldn't be like and then i passed a guy wearing a baseball hat and then i passed a, an old man carrying <laughs> a briefcase and then i like you know it just gets to yeah. be too much
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. It does sort of sometimes when you read all of them together, it does have kind of a very small town feel because they do pop up and they'll say a name. You'll be like, oh, it's (laughs) so-and-so. Oh,
1: it's (laughs) so-and-so.
0: Yeah. I'm like, oh, there he is. Hope he's doing okay. Yeah. It's, and then with the spinoff, they, a lot of them pop up in that one. So it's like, there's that connection. It's, it's a huge universe she's got going on. And then a Twitter follower told me that I guess all of her series are in a way connected so she has another series that's called the Corsair series and there was like um like it's like an easter egg a dropped line in one of these other books that mentions a character from those books. So that's a hint that they're all connected. So I'm like, "Oh my gosh, like I cannot imagine. I'm sure Ruby Dixon has to have some wall at home somewhere that's just sticky notes and strings yeah <laughs> that connect everything because aliens it's
1: except there's actually aliens. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so it's just bonkers. So that's, I guess, Barbarian's hope. Was there anything we didn't discuss that you would like to make sure we talk about? I don't think there's anything we didn't discuss. Yeah, this one doesn't have as much... Like, it has a few sexy times, but, like, I feel like getting bogged down in the sexy times sort of takes away from the big emotional meat of this book, and that's what it's about. It's about yeah. dealing with the emotions.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, I gotta say, I mean, like, the sexy times, like, they were great. They were they were <laughs> perfectly fine. I, I mean... Come on. I mean, I was led to believe that the sexy times were going to be a lot more bonkers. And I think it's perfectly fine that they were not more bonkers. But I was like, I've read Dirtier. <laughs> well, and I think, again, it goes back to
0: like, she knows when to rein it in. And yeah. so for this book, she's like, not here. Maybe, maybe not in the one that's dealing with the, you know, grief. And there are other ones where, yeah, they have fun. It gets really, <laughs> they get buck wild. They go wild. They have a lot of fun, let's say that. So yes. So I think that's that's cool. She knows she knows her art. She knows her craft. I will say she's very creative and I love it. Like I feel like I don't feel like I whenever I read one of her sex scenes, like she's just copying pasting names in like a scene over and over again. Like she thinks about it and she puts the characters and she's like, This is how these two characters would have sex and it feels it doesn't feel, it feels different every time you read it, so. Yes,
1: this, this, the sex scenes, the intimacy felt appropriate for the characters, for the situation, for the, the context of the story, so I definitely agree. I think that's
0: it. Uh would you continue reading the series, or are you interested, I guess, is to say? No, you don't have to, like, give a definitive, like, I definitely <laughs> plan to, but would you be interested in reading more?
1: I would be interested in reading more, but, like, as somebody who has a romance novel podcast of my own... <laughs> I gotta be honest, there's a lot of other books that I have to prioritize first, but... um, listen, I get it. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, it's not like, I'm not like, all right, that was it, I'm done. I I I would. I don't know if I have time to, but I would. Uh, listen, I nothing anyone
0: has said on this podcast has resonated with me so much as what you just said. <laughs> I'm doing two podcasts at one time. Between this and Black Chick Lit, I can't think of anything I've read, like... On my own, it has ruined my Goodreads challenge for the year. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not making because it's like I have to read for this podcast and then I read for that one, and then in between that, I don't. Anytime I'm reading anything for myself, I feel guilty because it's like, well, you should be reading that other book that you're supposed to be reading for the podcast. So I don't. So you know, listen, I, I yeah,
1: I <laughs> I read I read this book in one night. I was like midweek. I was like, okay, let me let me get started and. I had a whole evening where I wasn't editing and, you know, I didn't have another recording coming up this weekend because I'm like in this weird situation where I, actually have a little bit of downtime because I pr- because I recorded like two episodes a week, like back in <laughs> December and January, um, which was wild, um, was really out of control. Um, and I had this like little break. So I was like, okay, let me get started on this. And I finished. And then I was like, wait, can I like read a book that I want to read now? Like, no, surely I need to be doing something else. Like I should be editing. I should be social media I should be doing, but I have, I did actually start reading something for fun um, even though I have another recording next weekend, but I don't want to read too soon. Like if I read too soon, then I kind of like start losing the details. So I like to actually read as close as possible to recording.
0: Oh, I would love a podcast about podcasting where somebody <laughs>
1: just talks to podcasts or something. Like, how do you do it? It'd probably be super popular because we all know that podcasters listen to a lot of podcasts. Yes. So, um, it'd probably actually be more popular than all of our individual <laughs> podcasts. Else? um
0: yeah and that seems like a great leeway like right segue into telling where can the audience where can listeners find you in your podcast
1: all right we find all your things so uh the best place to go for everything is shelflovepodcast.com uh you can also search your favorite podcast app of choice for Love. Podcast. It's so shelf love is two words, and I'm on Twitter at Shelf Love Pod on Instagram at Shelf Love Podcast. And um, I'd really love it if you come and came and checked out uh, the episodes. Got lots of awesome episodes coming up with Emma Berry. We read a Seditious Affair by KJ Charles. Um, I also have Adriana Herrera coming up reading The Kingmaker by Kennedy Ryan, and. Uh, for fans of the Ice Planet podcast, I'm doing an episode with Megan Erickson where we read Guardian by Emmy Chandler, which is a prison planet romance. So no, oh. no aliens, but planetary stuff. So um, space, space, yeah. So it's so I'm I'm really excited about that one. As you can tell by like so on shelf love, we do historical, contemporary, uh, crazy, you know, stuff all over the place. Definitely do not limit. ourselves by genre so um, would love it if you come and uh, you know follow on social or check out an episode
0: yes well thank you again Um, this was a lot of fun I think you were perfect for this podcast because it was this episode because it was just so heavy and I was like we're gonna have to sit and and dig into this one so thank you again I'm so excited you agreed to be a part of this
1: you are so welcome and thank you for inviting me I I got the message I was like oh my god I've made it
0: I am so very grateful that I had Andrea here for this discussion. Um, I am not a parent, and as we dug further and further into this conversation, I sort of realized how unequipped I was to handle such a heavy, heavy topic on my own. So yes, just so very grateful I had her here to share some of that insight. This episode wasn't as, you know, wacky or zany as some of the other book discussions have been, but you know... That's, that's how the series, that's how the series is. You know, sometimes we get a heavier, less wacky book and then we get, you know, bone dildos and or face sitting or whatever the situation calls for. So next week we will have, we'll go back to our weird, zany, sexy shenanigans. Melody from Heaving Bosoms will join us. We will be discussing Barbarian's Choice, aka Farley's book. I love this one because I just love that they introduced the modern day... I know they're not called Sakui because they're not... They don't have a Kui, but they're basically it. They're the modern day Sakui. And so we get to f- see what their deal is about. See how this species develops when they're not... I don't know. It just It's great. I loved it. And we're going to get all into it next week. So as always, thank you for joining me. Um, thank you for listening. I'm grateful for everyone who listens to this extremely self-indulgent project I started. We are over the hump, my friends. We are rounding the bend. Uh, we're about to finish. I've predicted this series might finish in May. So if I keep up at the clip I'm going. So it's been an exciting time. Thank you again. I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and bye.